0: This comes from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. John 12, 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. It is. oh, Okay, there we go, there we go. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. It's a privilege to, uh, to share God's word with you and to worship with you this morning. It's a double privilege because uh, the gentleman who welcomed me this morning, when, uh, when he found out I was from Gordon-Conwell uh, Seminary, he asked me if I was a professor there. That is the first time that's ever happened to me. That was very exciting, I enjoyed that brownie points to him in 1997 the summer blockbuster smash hit of the year uh was the film the lost world this the the sequel to jurassic park don't worry if you if you haven't seen it it follows the same storyline that all the dinosaur films follow people go to an island filled with dinosaurs uh People get attacked by said dinosaurs, and then people, some of the people, uh, escape from the island filled with dinosaurs. Very simple, straightforward process. And The Lost World is no different. And you get to this moment at about the 100-minute mark. It feels like a great moment. It feels like the film is coming to an end. Uh, The hero, Dr. Ian Malcolm, has escaped from the velociraptors. He has saved his daughter, and they climb aboard a helicopter, and they leave the island. You could roll the credits right at that point, and everyone would be happy. You see, it's a moment of calm. It's a moment of resolution after all the action, after all the chaos that's taken place. It feels like a moment that you could end happily. It's a story we like to hear. The good overcomes the evil. And with the story that Pastor Ryan just read for us this morning, you could be forgiven for thinking that we are at the end of our story. That good has overcome evil. It's a good moment we read about this morning. There. Oh, better? Okay. Okay. There we go. Better? Oh, l- yes. Okay. Excellent. But like uh, The Lost World, this ending wasn't... It, it didn't really end here. It may have been the 100-minute mark, but Steven Spielberg, being the master filmmaker that he Id, is, adds on a whole other act where a T-Rex escapes in San Diego and causes mayhem. And even though our passage today feels like a moment of arrival, it actually leads the way for a whole third act in the Gospels. It feels like a good moment. Jesus, all the way through John's Gospel up until this point, has faced great opposition all through his ministry. Uh, People haven't understood him. Uh, they've called him crazy. They've called him demon-possessed. They've accused him of blaspheming, of breaking the Sabbath. A crowd has attacked him and tried to kill him. And he's lost most of the disciples that he's gained. And we turn the page into John 12. And finally, it feels like a moment to celebrate. It feels like a great moment. The crowds are coming out of Jerusalem to welcome Jesus into the city. They're waving palm branches, they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And it was a huge crowd that day. Jerusalem had a population at the time of about 100,000 people, but for the Passover, many people from all over Israel would gather into Jerusalem to celebrate. And one historian writing at the time, Josephus, estimated that there was about 2.5 million people in the city. That's about four times the size of the city of Boston. The city grew 25 times over. It was a gigantic crowd that went out and was proclaiming Jesus as king. It finally feels like Jesus has overcome, that people are recognizing who he is, that they believe in the Son of God, and that the Pharisees are defeated. You could roll the credits right there, and everyone would think, what a great story. But of course, we know the story doesn't end there. This is just the beginning of the end. The triumphal entry is both a moment of great arrival, but it's also the moment that starts the dark road that leads through Gethsemane, that leads through Calvary, that leads to the resurrection. The triumphal entry was the moment that started a chain of events that would lead to the mount of crucifixion. But It feels like such a great moment. What went wrong? Why does the crowd who were there proclaiming Jesus as king fade away? Why do the Pharisees reject Jesus before he's even got into the city? What goes wrong? The problem was that while they welcomed Jesus that day, they didn't really want what he was offering. By entering as he did, Jesus was proclaiming himself to be their Messiah, their king. And both the Pharisees and the crowds rejected that king. The Pharisees straight away, the crowds just a few verses later. Both the Pharisees and the crowd had an idea of the kind of king that they wanted. They didn't want Jesus. See, Jesus is not a king in our image but he is the very image of a king. Jesus is not a king in our image, but he is the very image of a king. And for us here today in our worship, we have welcomed Jesus into our gathering. We've welcomed him into our lives. But our story shows us that we can sing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest with our mouths, while in our hearts rejecting the kind of king that Jesus wants to be the test is not how loudly we proclaim jesus as king the test comes a few verses later it comes in the in the car park it comes when our alarm goes off tomorrow morning what kind of king have we enthroned in our hearts what kind of king have we set up over our lives Jesus is not a king in our image, but he is the very image of a king. The Pharisees wanted a king who would leave them alone. Before we even read this story today, if I asked you who was the one group who was not going to be standing outside the city applauding Jesus as he came in, you could, you could guess the Pharisees. The, the, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they've been on the scene all the way through John's gospel. They're there asking questions, trying to figure out who this Jesus is. And they realize they don't, they don't like him. Jesus doesn't talk like them. He doesn't think in the same way that they think. He can't be caught in their traps. Jesus is a threat to them. And at the end of the, the chapter that comes just before, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees hold a council because they see the crowds going after Jesus, and they decide that Jesus needs to be put to death. And the reason they give for this is important. This is John eleven forty eight. 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Everyone will believe, and the Romans will come. See, at the time, Israel had quite a precarious position in the world. They were part of the Roman Empire. Rome was the, the governing military force of the time, and Israel was essentially an occupied nation. They were given some leeway. They were allowed to have some of their own laws, some of their own rules. They could govern themselves to a certain extent, but their position was precarious. They had to keep the peace, they had to pay their taxes, and Israel dreamed of being a free nation once again. and the time of the Passover was uh, it was quite uh, a fraught moment every year. Both the Jews and the Romans would get a little bit antsy around the time of the Passover. Because essentially what the Passover was, was a commemoration of when the the, the children of Israel had thrown off their Egyptian oppressors and found freedom and victory. So the Pharisees worried that Jesus was going to mess things up for them. When Jesus entered Jerusalem and the crowds went after him and proclaimed him as the king of Israel... Their fears had become true. The world had gone after him. The Pharisees worried that Jesus was going to mess everything up. The Pharisees worried that Jesus was going to come in and bring change. The Pharisees didn't want Jesus to mess with things the way they were. They were happy, they were content with the status quo. Never mind that the Lord of all creation in his great love was, was dwelling right before their eyes. They did not want their lives to change. And never mind that the Lord of all creation dwells within our hearts. For a lot of us, we don't want our lives to change. We don't want a king who will come and mess things up. We're happy with the status quo. We're content with things just the way they are. We want a king who will leave us alone. Imagine if you're going to have a guest come and stay over your house. If you've got a spare room, you will, uh, you'll probably set up a bed for them so that they can stay. You will um, put fresh bed linen out. You'll make sure there's a clean towel in the cupboard. Uh, you'll go and welcome them at the door. You'll, you'll usher them in. You'll show them to their room and say, hey, we're so happy you're here. Make yourself at home. You might leave them for a few minutes just so they can settle in. Now, if your guest was to come into the room and was to look around and think, hey, I need to charge my phone and they saw that all the, the outlets in the room were already in use, they unplugged one of your devices and plugged their phone in instead. You wouldn't be offended. If your friend was to move the nightstand slightly closer to the bed so they could reach the lamp, that's no problem. You see, you had given your guest authority. You'd told them to make themselves at home, and you'd given them a space in which they could be welcome. Now, if your guest decided, you know what, white wood paneling—that's not really for me. I don't like that so much. They got out their can of paint and started painting the walls bright pink. You would be horrified if your guest was to come down to your uh, living room and think, "Hey, you know what? Uh, the the furniture—the way you've got this set up—this is the, I don't like it. I'm going to start rearranging things. Hey, grab the other end of that bookcase. I'm moving it over there." You would be offended. But this is what we do with Jesus. We give him a small amount of authority. We give him spaces in which he can exercise his authority. But we don't like it when he comes into the other areas of our lives and starts exerting his kingship over the rest of our lives. We want a limited king. We don't like it when God starts talking to us about our time beyond Sunday morning. God, you can have Sunday morning. You can even possibly have Sunday night, maybe Wednesday night. The rest of the time, that's for me. That's for my goals, my ambitions, my desires. And we find it hard when God starts talking to us about how we spend our time. if God asks you to spend half an hour less watching television so that you can spend time with him. Maybe you have a high-pressure job and God is speaking to you about not working late so much or not working at the weekend so that you can have a Sabbath, so that you can spend time with your family, so that you can be involved in ministry. Most of us feel okay that God can expect us to bring uh, offerings, tithes, but we don't like it when God starts to speak to us about how we spend the rest of our money. For my wife and I, we, we have a budget that we live on, uh, and you know, we have a little Excel spreadsheet, and we, we've got a line item for everything. You know, we've got our housing, our food, our gas, we've even got our tithing and our giving as well. I find it hard when God talks to me about being generous on top of that. There's a part of me that likes to think, this part is God's, and this part is mine. This is for my needs, my purposes. But Jesus wants to be the Lord of everything that I have. The Pharisees wanted a king who would leave them alone. We want a king who will not come into our lives and make changes. We want a limited king. We want a king who is content with the guest bedroom. We want a king who will not start knocking down the walls which we have spent so much time building. We don't want a savior who will start a renovation project on our lives. We want a limited king. We want a king in our image. The crowds also wanted a king in their own image. They had a different picture of what that king would look like, but the problem remains the same. They wanted a king in their own image. Even though the crowd has a much more positive view of Jesus than the Pharisees, our story shows us that the crowd still has the wrong picture of the kind of king that Jesus really is. In verses 13 and 14 in our passage, we see that the crowds viewed Jesus as an earthly king, not as a heavenly king. They came out of the city waving palm branches in the air. This was really significant. Palm branches were the, the symbol of the Jewish nation. We've got writings that show that when the the Jewish people were celebrating military victories, they would come out and they would wave palm branches. In AD 66, when the Jews revolted against the Romans about 20 years after this, they got as far as printing their own coins, and on those coins they printed palm branches. It was a sign of victory. It was a sign of their freedom. and they wave it to welcome Jesus into the city. It's a little, the equivalent would be to welcome Jesus into North Andover by waving an American flag. And they call Jesus the King of Israel. There's nothing wrong with that title, but that's the only thing they call him, the King of Israel. And of course, Jesus is the King of Israel, but he's so much more than that as well. In verse 18, we're told that the crowds were following Jesus because of the signs he performed. The crowds wanted a man of power. They wanted an earthly king. They wanted someone who would set them free from the Roman Empire. They wanted a revolutionary, a ruler. Unlike the Pharisees who didn't want anything to change, the crowds wanted a king who would change everything. And they were willing to follow that king as long as he did what they expected. As long as he fulfilled their desires. As long as he could deliver the goods. Jesus' kingship over them was conditional. And once the crowds realized that Jesus was not the king they were looking for, they left. The word crowd is used quite a lot in John's Gospel. It's They're all the way from chapter 5 through chapter 12, but the last time the word crowd is used is 15 verses after the triumphal entry, i.e., just as soon as Jesus got inside the gates of Jerusalem. The problem was that Jesus started telling them about the kind of king that he was. He told the crowd that he was going to be lifted up from the earth. As in, he was going to die. And the crowds went, whoa, what do you mean going to die? We know what the Messiah is all about. We know what the king of Israel should do. And it isn't dying. Our understanding is that the Messiah will stay forever. They found that Jesus had a completely different agenda from them. And so Jesus hid himself from them because they didn't believe. And the crowds faded away. They wanted Jesus to be their king as long as he was the king they were expecting. As long as he was the king that they were looking for. They wanted a king with conditions. And so often we also want a king with conditions. We're happy to serve Jesus as long as everything is going well. As long as our life is on track, then Jesus can be the Lord over us. But as soon as troubles arise, as soon as storms come, then Jesus' kingship is thrown out the window. It's easier to let Jesus be the, the Lord over our finances when our bank statement makes us feel secure. It's easier for us to be faithful in our devotional time. It's easier for us to be faithful in ministry when we don't feel stressed, when we don't feel pressured at school or at work. When the alarm goes off, or in my household, when our one-year-old wakes up, And she wakes up half an hour earlier than you were expecting, and your day's begun, and you've got a busy day ahead because you've got deadlines looming. It can be so easy to lose sight of what God wants to do around you, through you, in you, because you become so focused on your own activities, on your own goals, on your own desires. Jesus can be the king over my life as long as I'm not too busy. Jesus can be the Lord over my finances as long as I feel safe and secure. There's a quotation I love from Martin Luther, the the father of the uh, uh, Protestant church. And my wife has heard this like a million times, so she's going to roll her eyes at me. But it, doesn't, it never fails to get me. It, it never fails to convict me. He said, every day I spend an hour in prayer. Unless I'm really, really busy. Then I spend two hours in prayer. He understood that Jesus' kingship over his life was not conditional. That when our own goals, when our own activities increase so So much the more do we need to make Jesus king over our lives. The crowds wanted Jesus to be a king as long as he would do what they wanted. As long as he would lead the fight against Rome. As long as he would lead the revolution. As long as he performed up to scratch. As long as he did what they wanted him to. And the way we live our lives often reflects that same desire. We want Jesus to be the king. As long as he does what we want him to. As long as our life is going okay. But Jesus isn't a king in our image, he's the very image of a king. And as Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was entirely clear about the kind of king that he is. He purposefully, he consciously sat himself on a donkey so that he might fulfill the prophecy from Zechariah. He was showing to them the kind of king that he is. John gives us an abbreviated account from Zechariah, but I think it's useful to read the the context to understand the kind of king that Jesus was proclaiming himself to be. This is Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I, the Lord, will take away the chariots from Ephraim, And the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. The Pharisees wanted a king who wouldn't rock the fragile political environment. Jesus was proclaiming himself to be a king who would change an entire world order, who would remove warfare, who would declare peace to the nations. The crowd wanted a king who would give them their nation back. Jesus was proclaiming himself to be the king from the ends of the earth, from the river to the ends of the earth. They wanted a small king, a small king. They wanted a weak king. They wanted a shallow king. Their eyes were transfixed on a muddy puddle when the ocean lay in front of them. They wanted a king in their own image. But Jesus was showing himself to be the very image of a king. And we get no better picture of the kind of king that Jesus was than our gentle Savior. Not riding into Jerusalem with an army behind him on a war horse. He rides in humble on a donkey. He has righteousness and salvation with him. They wanted a small king. They wanted a king in their own image, but Jesus is the very image of a king. Just after we got married, my wife and I, uh, we lived in the UK for a few years. Uh, That was kind of the deal we we made when we got married. We would lived there. My wife's from the States, so we knew we were returning back to the States at some point. Uh, and my wife got a little bit homesick from time to time. As you, as you could imagine, she's away from her family. She's in a dark and gloomy country where we don't really do summer. Uh, and she missed being in the States. And I decided one day, you know what? I'm going to do something really nice for Alyssa because I am a wonderful husband. I decided to make her a lovely American-style dinner. But give us some good home cooking. Now it's not unusual that I do the cooking. In fact, I do most of the cooking in our relationship. She does, she does the laundry, I do the cooking, it's just the way it works. And I have, a, I should explain I have a particular style of cooking where I tend to add things to recipes to, uh, to, to make them a little bit healthier than they might otherwise be. I tend to Lob vegetables that the, the, nec- the, 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 the recipe doesn't necessarily call for into the, into the dish. But this particular night I decided I was gonna make Alyssa ribs and sweet potato mash. Now I'm not much of a mashed potato guy, it's just it's not really my thing. Uh, we, we Brits believe that the roast potato is the king of all potatoes and mashed potato is kind of secondary. But this night, I was going to make a, ro- a sweet potato mash. And Alyssa was really looking forward to it. So being the sensible guy that I am, I go online, and I look up a sweet potato mash recipe. And you know what I found? I found a recipe for a healthy sweet potato mash. Not just a sweet potato mash. It was a sweet potato and carrot mash. How many of you know that when your wife is really looking forward to a sweet potato mash, that to offer her a sweet potato and carrot mash is just the wrong thing to do? And there came a moment midway through the meal where Alyssa lifted a fork of the mash to me and there can only, um, sitting on the fork, it was nothing else than a, a big chunk of carrot. The jig was up and she said to me in a low and menacing voice, what is this? (laughs) Melissa expected one thing and she received something else. She had a picture in her mind of what sweet potato mash should be. And she was unwilling to accept anything else. So often we have a picture of the kind of king that Jesus should be. And we are unwilling to accept anything else. We want a a small king. We want a king who will not start making changes in our life. Who won't start a renovation project. We want a king just as long as... Things are going well. We want a king conditionally. We want a king in our own image. C.S. Lewis once said, uh, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We want a king in our own image. It's small. It's not the kind of king that Jesus is. So today, let us join with the crowds as we welcome Jesus into the Jerusalem of our lives. But as the crowds fade away into the background, let us continue to enthrone Jesus in our hearts and in every part of our lives. Let us leave aside the small ideas that we have of Jesus' kingship and accept him as the king of glory, the lord of all creation that he is. Let's not set up a king in our own image, but let's let Jesus be the king that he is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so sorry for the times in our life where we have not given lordship over our lives to you, where we have not yielded control, where we have kept things for ourselves. Lord, we know that our lives are a continual process of giving ourselves to you of learning to let you be the Lord of us. And Lord, I pray that more than anything today, that you would expand our vision of what it means for you, for you to be our king. Lord, that you would bring us to the end of ourselves. Lord, that we would acknowledge that we need a king, that we need someone to rule over our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would willingly give you everything that we have. That you would truly be enthroned in our lives. That we would worship you for the king that you are. And we'd bring ourselves into conformity with your rule. Rather than trying to bring your rule into conformity with us. In Jesus' name, amen.